It's my privilege to introduce our speaker this morning, and uh, I can't find a microphone to do it with, so I'm going to do it from this one. And so what I'm going to do is just go ahead and stay here and lead the next songs. So, yeah, why not, right? (laughs) Come on over here. Should I bring this? Yeah. So this is Dr. Matthew Hall. Can we welcome him this morning? Good morning. So... So, uh, Dr. Hall, or Matt, as he is sometimes called, if you're his really close friend, can I call you that? That's that's right. There it is right there. We're all close now. So, um, Matthew Hall is the provost of Biola University, and as such, he oversees all of the academics that happens there. He works closely with Rick Langer. We know Rick and love Rick. And he is also here, so they have, they're new to California a year ago this month. So can we welcome them to California? So his wife, Jeannie, is sitting right down here in the front row. Um, So we're glad to have them. They have three kids, and their kids are, um, they wanted to be in their church today. I get that. That's a wonderful thing. So tell us a little bit about your three kids, uh, Matt. Yeah, they're fun to talk about. Uh, George is 18. He just graduated high school. And then Charlie is uh, 15. He'll be a sophomore. And Jane is 13 going on 28. Uh, some of you know that if you're parents of daughters. So we're thankful for them and God's, God's work in their life. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. So before this, they were 20 years uh, at Southern Seminary in Kentucky. So does that mean you're into horse racing? I've never put a bet on a horse. Never I can put promise you that. There uh, we go. But they are amazing animals. I yes, they are. That. Yeah, beautiful out there. But uh, we're so glad that you came to us today. Thank you so much for taking your time, for traveling out here from where you are. Appreciate you guys being here. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. Why don't you go ahead? move this out front here. So are you a high-risk guy? Do you want to be out here? I don't know. It's, it's just how, how uh, precarious, yeah, how, 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 how far do we want to push it? I don't know, but we'll, we'll find out. All right. Thanks, Steve. Uh, it is wonderful to be with you this morning. What a, a privilege to get to be with you. And uh, my kids, I hope you don't take that personally. I, I mentioned to Steve, one of our sons got back from camp last night. And so as we were watching the video of your middle school students and uh, what God did in their lives. Uh, he came home, and he was like, i got to be at youth group tomorrow. And uh, I said, oh, okay. All right, you should be at youth group tomorrow. Um, so I just rejoice in what God's doing here among you, and so glad to know of, of your ministry. You have a wonderful reputation, by the way. Um, people, when they speak of this church, speak very highly of it, and that includes Rick Langer, but also Alan Cavlich. I don't know if, if Alan's here this morning, but a board member... There's, there's Alan, yeah. So glad to see you, Alan, and just know of just deep connections to Biola over the years um, as we both together, both here at Trinity and at Biola, seek to equip men and women for kingdom service around the world to honor the Lord Jesus, all rooted and founded in God's Word. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning, and uh, I would ask maybe that you meet me in, in your Bibles. If you have one, either open it or turn it on to Genesis chapter 22. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll take some time this morning just to explore a passage that I think is familiar to you, but maybe um, so familiar that at times we overlook some of what God has for us in it. Um, so, Genesis chapter 22, that's the first book in your Bible, if you're not sure. And if you're a visitor this morning, if it's your first time at Trinity, uh, so mine too. 
So we're here together, and I, and I hope you will come to find, just as I have this morning, this to be such a welcoming and warm uh, church family. So, uh, all right, if you've got it, say, I got it. All right, we're ready. Um, let me read this passage to you. We're just going to look at the first 14 verses, and after I read it, I'll pray, and we'll walk through it together, okay? This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they, so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told, them, told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we um, ask this morning that you would work in every heart in this room, that we would be not only hearers of your word, but doers. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your inspired and errant word that speaks to us with authority and life and tells us the way we should go in the way of Jesus. And so we ask, Lord, this morning that you would give me clarity and concision of speech that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive from your word what you would have for us, and that you would be glorified in all these things, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever had a, a stress test. Have you ever had one? You know, a stress test has a way of revealing what's really going on. Some of you have had that experience. You've gone to the doctor, maybe, for a cardiac stress test. You know, they, they put you, they put all these electrodes on you and wire you up, and then they put you on a treadmill and make you run at some horrible speed just to try to not kill you, but come close, right? You've had that, and so it's like, let's, let's push you as much as we can 
to see how healthy you are. Right? Is, is, any, is everything working? If there's a problem in your, in your heart or your cardiovascular system, this stress that we're going to impose is going to reveal to us what's actually there. It will reflect the, it will give us an accurate reflection or test of what's really going on. The whole point is to reveal any sort of hidden weakness or problem. And it may not be a pleasant, it's not a pleasant experience, it's not a may, it's, it is not a pleasant experience, but it might save your life. And I don't know about you, but I do know this, I, I know that God does not tempt his children, his word is very clear on that, but he does test his children. In fact, James tells us in his epistle in the New Testament to count it joy when we experience, as James puts it, various trials. Isn't that broad? Various trials. He says this, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James says that this is a key part of our growing and maturing as Christians, this testing of our faith, this trying of our faith. So, when God, and it is God who does it, when God leads you through, through those kinds of tests, through those kinds of trials, and maybe if you're here this morning, you are going through one of those this very day, how are you and I to think about that? What, what do we have to hold on to when everything may seem to be shaky or uncertain in those seasons of trial and testing, what can you hold on to with absolute certainty in a time of testing or trial? This morning, I want us to look at this one story that you heard read in the Old Testament, a familiar story, and draw some insight into that question. What can you trust in in a time of testing or trial? Well, first of all, you can trust in God's commands. You can trust in God's commands. That might seem like a strange first thing to throw out there, you know, something you're going to hold on to. But here's the simple reality of this story. If you noticed this passage that you heard read in Genesis chapter 22, it's structured with three recurring statements from Abraham. I don't know if you heard it. Abraham says on three occasions, here I am. Two of those are toward God. One of those, did you catch who it was toward? His son Isaac, right? So he says three times in the story, and so the author here is doing something. He's, this isn't by accident. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he is, he's, he's trying to tell you and I, the reader, something. Abraham says this refrain three times, here I am. But think about this command here that God gives him. It's an astonishing command right here in the beginning. After these things, well, I won't go into what these things are. You can read chapter 21 for that. But it's a season really of, of uh, settling and, and prosperity for Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham. How did he do that? He gives him this call, this command. Abraham, here's the first one. Here I am, says Abraham. And what's the command? It's straightforward enough. God tells him plainly and specifically, get Isaac, take a three-day road trip with him, and when you get there, kill him and burn his body as an offering to me. 
That's, let's, not, let's not dance around it. That's, that's exactly what is being commanded of Abraham here. Take your only son. Take this, this, this long road trip with him and kill him because that's what I'm calling you to do. And, and, and as if that's not challenging enough, God also kind of says, and, and I'll give you the GPS coordinates when you get there. So just, just go, here, but here's what you're going to do, but I'll tell you exactly where to go when you get there. I don't, I don't like that. I, I mean, I don't know if you're like me. I mean, when I go, so I want to be able to punch in the exact address on my phone and know exactly where I'm going. I want to know, is it, is it route A? Is it route B? What's the quickest way to get there? I don't like not knowing where I'm going. God gives a very difficult command here to Abraham, and we shouldn't miss that. I like how one commentator puts it here. Abraham's trust was to be weighed in the balance against common sense, human affection, and lifelong ambition, in fact, against everything earthly. This simple command is devastating, devastatingly challenging. And the story, casually almost, if you caught it, it tells us that Abraham just kind of got up the next morning and did as God commanded. Did you catch it? Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddles his donkey, etc., etc. Like it's just command, next morning Abraham's off. And you might be tempted because of the brevity of the narrative to assume that, well, this was just kind of a casual thing for Abraham. I mean, because it's not every day for you and I that God says, please kill one of your children and offer them up as a sacrifice to me. By the way, if you're new to Christianity or this seems really gruesome or strange to you, welcome to the Old Testament. The, the God of the Bible is not a safe God. <laughs> he does things and says things that we sometimes go, well, that seems unsophisticated or, or that doesn't seem very modern. But you'll come to find that he is better than you can imagine. And just hold on, you're going to see that in this story. But I wonder what that night must have been like. Because the, the speed of the narrative just rushes along from verse 2 to 3. But what must that night have been like before the next morning? I have to imagine that Abraham didn't sleep much that night. I mean, he's a father after all. He's a loving father after all. I'm, I'm sure he had questions. He, he must have had questions. Wasn't, after all, wasn't God the one who had given him and Sarah this gift of a son years ago when they were themselves old and infertile? I mean, this, this son was no normal son, Isaac. He was a supernatural gift of God to them. Hadn't God been the one to promise that he would make a great nation through Isaac? He had. God had said it will be through this son, not through Ishmael, not through the other sons from Haggai. No, it will be through this boy. I will make a great nation for you. Hadn't God said that? Why in the world would God command this? I, I can't imagine how Abraham slept that night. And I, I mean, you even wonder if Abraham's going, well, did I misunderstand something? Did I get the facts wrong? Did I, did, was I hallucinating? I mean, you'd start to maybe go a little crazy. Did God really say that? You see, there, there is something in our nature, isn't there, that recoils instinctively at God's commands. It's in our fallen human nature. Even in the Garden of Eden, 
we find the serpent coming to the woman and saying what? Has God really said? No, if you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not die, right? But has, has God really, can you really trust his commands? That question has plagued humanity ever since our first parents in the Garden of Eden. We doubt and deny his word, and we reject his commands. It's, if you doubt me, by the way, it's on full display in our culture right now. I mean, just open up your phone later, turn on the news, go to the movies. Like, we live in a culture that is just so distorted from what God has said to be true and what he commands of us as his people. The church of Jesus Christ has always lived in a world that pressures it to twist or distort the reality and the goodness of God's clear commands. That's not new. But we're living in a culture where we feel it maybe especially so. But here's for all that we could say about that, and we could say a lot more, couldn't we? What's, what's impressed upon us in this text is that Abraham presses through whatever there may have been, and we don't know, right? We don't know what that night was like for him. But whatever that might have been like, what's emphasized for you and for me is that Abraham presses through that by faith. Did he have questions? I'm sure he did. Did the circumstances seem almost unbearable? I suspect they did. But notice that his obedience was immediate and intentional. Abraham's obedience was immediate and intentional. He got up early. Did you catch that in verse 3? It's not a little detail that's in there by accident. This is from the, you know, this is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So every word matters. Abraham got up early in the morning to obey. He got the donkey ready. He assembled the needed supplies. He spent, think about this, he spent time splitting firewood. What in the world goes through your mind as a father as you're splitting firewood to take on a three-day journey to burn your son's corpse? Sorry to be graphic, but that's the nature of this scenario. But he is obeying the Lord in this. And then they take out, they set out on the trip. That is a picture for you and for me of faith, of obedience, trusting, Abraham here, trusting that God's commands are trustworthy. It's an incredible picture. What does that look like in your life, I wonder? To trust God's commands, even in the most difficult of circumstances. I suspect in this church, just like in any church, if we took time, you could give testimony to seasons in which you or someone you love has had to press through obeying God's commands, even when it wasn't easy, especially when it wasn't easy. And maybe people around you thought, you're crazy. But you now, on the other side of it, can look back and say, I can tell you God was good and faithful and true, and his commandments are always good. Chances are, uh, you know, you, every now and then you hear stories like this, and Abraham's maybe is the most vivid, you know, there's the audible voice of God calling out to Abraham here, right? And Abraham responds, here I am. Now, I'm not going to get into a theological debate with you over whether you will hear the audible voice of God or not, uh, but you will hear God's voice to you, I promise you this, every time you pick up your Bible. Uh, at, at minimum, you'll hear it there. 
And there may be times when you, there will be times, if, if you haven't lived long enough as a Christian, just wait for it. There will be times when God will speak to you directly and call you to do something by His Holy Spirit. And the question then is not just, well, that's interesting. It's, will you, will I obey? Even when it seems to make no sense, even when it seems terribly costly. When God speaks to us, and He does speak, He has clearly revealed His will for us in His Word. So are you, am I, even this morning, refusing to follow His commands? Whether that's in areas where maybe I'm doing things I'm not supposed to do, my living situation with her or with him, your sexual activity, that's the easy one for every preacher to go to, I know, uh, cheating on your taxes, just maybe not, maybe we don't call it cheating, it's just, I'm just submitting a, a tax return that's my interpretation of uh, my finances. My, the IRS might not agree just fudging a little bit. Maybe it's in your heart, just harboring bitterness. When God clearly says, don't let the root of bitterness take root in your heart, and you're like, yeah, but it's, you don't understand God. <laughs> this bitter, I'm entitled to this bitterness because of what she did to me or what he did to me. Those little areas where we rationalize and excuse not following his commands. You have to do business with the Lord this morning and know it in the privacy of your own heart in your own conviction, where might you and I this morning be refusing to trust in God's good commands? But here's the good news. You can always trust God's commands because you can trust God. The, the, the trustworthiness of His commands only makes sense because He Himself is trustworthy. He's good and He is holy. And we'll find that as this story unfolds. So first, you can trust God's commands. Second, you can trust God's provision. We see this highlighted in verses 7 through 8. You, you heard it read. They make this trip. It's an, I mean, an incredible journey, right? Three days with some staff. And they eventually arrive at this region specified here in the text as the region of Moriah. So this is three days in. The only other mention we have, by the way, in the Old Testament of this area is in 2 Chronicles 3.1. Uh, where we're told that Solomon began to build his temple on Mount Moriah. So we think that this is probably the same mountain uh, near, you know, in Jerusalem. Um, so from where they were, they were living in the land of the Philistines. We're told that in Genesis 21. Three-day journey, they find themselves in Moriah, modern-day Jerusalem. Now at some point, it's clear in the text. At some point, God makes clear to Abraham which mountain he's to climb. Remember, he told him, when you get there, I'll tell you exactly which mountain to go up. So they make this journey, and we don't know how that went down, but at some point, God made clear to Abraham that mountain, right, right, right there. Go there and sacrifice your son. And that's where the story takes a transition. He and Isaac, Abraham and Isaac, leave the servants behind and the donkey and Abraham makes a rather amazing statement. I don't know if you caught it. Before he and his son begin their hike up the mountain, he turns to the servants and he says, the boy and I will go over there to worship, then we'll come back to you. That's in verse 5. Okay. I thought, 
you're going to sacrifice Isaac. So something's going on here. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to find out. But a Abraham makes this claim. We're going to go over there and worship the Lord, and then we'll come back. Was he bluffing? Did, did, I mean, he knew what God had commanded. Sacrifice your son, Isaac. The most natural reading seems to be that Abraham really expected this to be true, that he really thought he and Isaac would return back to the servants, that he was sincere in his comment to them. In some way, I think, Abraham here is signaling to us, and the, and the writer is signaling to us, that Abraham genuinely intended to obey God's command, but also simultaneously had faith that Isaac would come back down that mountain alive. And somehow those two would go together. It's setting you and I up as readers to know, how's this going to work? Now, the story here takes this turn as Abraham, Isaac, leave the servants and the donkey and go up the mountain. Abraham puts this firewood on his son's back. Now, if you, like me, grew up with some of uh, these wonderful story Bibles that we had when we were kids, you know, they, the Old Testament sometimes looked very quaint. And um, like this kind of story, you might be picturing like little Isaac, like how cute, you know, he's probably 11 or something like that. Not that 11-year-olds are cute, you know, but, you know, they're, they're still before middle school, like it's still, they're still, they haven't gone crazy. Um, but you, we tend to romanticize these stories. But the more likely reality here is that Isaac by this point is a grown man. Um, enough time has passed that Isaac is now probably stronger than his own father. And Abraham, by the way, remember, he was already a rather elderly man when Isaac was born, so he's even older now. So you have a, an older man and then a, a man kind of in the prime, young man in the prime of his life uh, hiking up here with this firewood on his back. Abraham carries the tools to start the fire. That's, that's referenced there in the story. And a knife. Now, I need to let you know, in your English translation, uh, the word used for knife is not the typical one that you would normally find. Uh, you, know, like, you might think of like a, an instrument of battle, right, a weapon. That's not the word used here for knife. The word used here is more of a meat cleaver. It's a butcher's instrument. I told you, it's, the Old Testament can get a little gruesome. This is the instrument a butcher would use to dismember an animal. And in verse 6, we're told that the two of them walked on together, Abraham carrying the torch and this meat cleaver, Isaac with the wood on his back. What a picture. I mean, you can almost see it in your mind, right? And as they're walking up the mountain, Isaac asks a very good question. Okay, I see Dad's got his rather scary-looking meat cleaver and the fire. And uh, what's missing? Now, amazingly, we're not told of any other questions from Isaac up to this point, which by the, I would think Isaac would have been full of questions, so many questions. But this is the first question that we're told of. We hear Isaac's voice calling to his dad, my father? Now, the English, again, the English translation might tempt you to read this as a cold or formal address, you know, my father. 
But the, again, the original language here punctuates it as an affectionate appeal. It's almost like if you know in the New Testament, the term Abba sometimes gets used as a fatherly term, like a, a more of a, an affectionate term. It's kind of like that, the way it's, it's structured here in the, in the Hebrew. It's dad? <laughs> I got a question. And again, you heard Abraham responds just as he did to God, here I am, my son. I wonder even if you can hear that, just that tone of affection between a son and a father in their exchange. It's as if the author here is trying to get your heart just so brought into the story where you're going, how is this going to get resolved? This is a picture of affection and love between a father and son. So here comes this son's question. Dad, I, I see the torch in your hand, and I feel the weight of the firewood on my back, but shouldn't we have a lamb to sacrifice? It's interesting. He, he doesn't actually mention his father's butcher blade. Abraham's response to his son, verse 8, it's right there, right? God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will take care of that. God will provide it. So they keep walking up that mountain together in faith. Now, it's interesting, when it came to sacrifices, it was always the responsibility of the worshiper to secure the animal that was going to be sacrificed and slaughtered. So that's, that's why, by the way, Isaac's question is reasonable. Isaac asks a good religious question. This is the kind of question the son of Abraham should ask. Father, like if we're going to worship the one true and living God on this mountain, if that's his command, like it's our duty as worshipers to provide this animal, right? It's a good question. Abraham's response is almost as if to say, God commanded this, God will provide for it. So they arrive at their destination, and verses 9 through 10 unfold with dramatic detail. This is the part of the story maybe that you're the most familiar with, and, and precision. And I don't know if you caught it, the story almost slows down. It decelerates right in these verses, right? Up to this point, it's been like, God commands this. Next thing you know, Abraham's packing his bags, and they're climbing a mountain. And now it's like, whoa, slow down. Here we are on the top of the mountain. Abraham builds the altar, arranges the firewood, he ties up his own son, which is all the more striking, by the way, when you consider that Isaac, being probably stronger than his father, had to allow himself to be tied up like this by his elderly father, trusting the Lord. And we get to this climactic moment where Abraham has taken out the meat cleaver and his hand is at the ready, prepared to kill his own son. Surely he's thinking, let me do this, Lord, in the quickest and most painless way possible. And suddenly, a messenger from God cries out. And we have Abraham's third response. And I have to imagine, this time, there's a quiver in his voice. Here I am, Lord. What are you having me do? And the messenger tells him to stop. That his fear of the Lord, his faith has been proven. And then they look. As you know, and there's a ram caught by its own horns in a nearby thicket of brush. It turns out that Abraham was right. The Lord himself would indeed provide. He provided a substitute to take Isaac's place. And as you heard it, Abraham names this mountain, this place, Yahweh Yira. God will see and provide. 
Now, here's the thing. God may not provide in the way or the timing that you and I expect. There is a whole counterfeit theology out there that says that you can kind of twist God's arm to give him, force him or compel him to give him exactly what you want when you want. That's not the God of the Bible. In God's economy, God does indeed provide perfectly for his children. He gives us what he knows we need precisely when we need it. And because he is infinitely wise and infinitely powerful, he not only knows what we need, but he has the ability to deliver on that in the perfect time according to his sovereign will. So think how much of your time and my time and energy is devoted to anxiety. Just take this by one way of application. How much of your heart on any given day is wrapped up and consumed with anxiety or fear about any number of questions where you feel you need God's provision? Maybe it's financial, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's relational, maybe it's with parenting, maybe it's with caring for aging parents, retirement, I don't know, whatever it is on your heart or mind this morning. And you feel your need, and your heart gets so twisted up in that, doesn't it? Mine does. But does God know what you and I need? He surely does. The question isn't just whether He knows our need, it's whether He cares. It'd be one thing if God knows of your need, but was indifferent to it. But the Bible makes so clear that towards His children, God loves us. He not only knows your need, He cares deeply for your need. And He is powerful and able to provide. Jesus refers to this very explicitly. Let me give you just one example. In Matthew 6, this is what Jesus says. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. This is what Jesus then says. He points to the birds and how God provides food for them, and he concludes this. Aren't you worth more than they, worth more than the birds? God does care. He cares for you. And then Jesus points to the wildflowers and how God provides for them. And Jesus says, won't he do more for you, you of little faith? If God cares for the flowers of the field, he cares infinitely more for you, his blood-bought children. He'll provide for you. He does see, he does care, he's able. And you can trust his provision. Third and finally, you can trust God's promises. You can trust God's promises. It would be one thing, wouldn't it, if the story had just stopped there. The ram is provided. Isaac gets to live. They get to go home together to Sarah, which is a good day. But it doesn't stop there. Now God speaks through an angelic messenger a second time, and God invokes this promise he had made to Abraham already in the past a promise God had made by his own name. By myself I had sworn, is the way God puts it in this story. God had made a promise by his own name, right? He can make no other, there's no other name higher by which God can make an oath than by his own name. This is God saying, on my own name I will make this commitment, this covenant with you, this promise. God will fulfill the promise he had made. Verse 17, we didn't read this, but this comes up later. 
I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my command. That's verses 17 and 18. What's God saying here? It's as if God has tested and tried Abraham's faith. Abraham has passed the test, and God reaffirms his promise. Everything I said about Isaac, it's gonna be, it's, I'm going to keep my promise to you, Abraham. It was not a game. It's true. I will make a great nation of you, and you will be a blessing to all the earth. He repeats the promise he had made to Abraham years before in Genesis 15. I don't know if you remember that story. Just a few chapters back in your Bible, but it's years prior. In that situation, God had called Abram out into the night, called him to lift his eyes up to that starry sky, and he had promised to him that he would have a son, an heir from his own body. There he had said that from this son, God would make for Abram a nation, a people more numerous than all the stars in the sky. And God had made it clear that those promises would be fulfilled through Isaac. Abraham, we're told, took God at his word, trusted him, and that's why the author to the Hebrews points to this story in Hebrews 11. Do you remember that? This is what the author to the Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises and yet, his, and yet was offering his one and only son, the one to whom it had been said, your seed will be called through Isaac. He considered God to be able to be able to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. What's the author to Hebrews saying there in Hebrews 11? Abraham knew those promises from years ago. He knew that God had promised, and he trusted that God would keep his promises. So much so, we're told in Hebrews 11, that Abraham believed if it, if, if it has to be through resurrection, then God will keep his promise. I think that's how Abraham was able to resolve that tension. I'm going to go up this mountain and obey God's command, and Isaac's coming back with me. Hebrews 11 tells us the way he reconciled with that was, then if I have to kill my son to obey the Father, to, to obey the Lord, then God will raise my son from the dead. God keeps his promises, every one of them. He has never failed to keep his word. He doesn't hedge on his promises. He cannot lie. He's absolutely dependable and completely reliable. And if he says it, you can trust it. Can you imagine that walk back down the mountain? Just think about it for a moment. Father and son go down the mountain without that firewood. The knife had been used to slaughter but Isaac was unscathed. The fire had been sparked. The firewood consumed. The smell of it probably still sticking to their clothes, but not a hair on Isaac's head was singed. They made that trip home to Beersheba, father and son together. Abraham had been tested by, and tried, but even more, it was God who had proved his faithfulness. Now, centuries later, an offspring of Abraham would walk the dusty roads of Galilee, and he would eventually make one last journey to Jerusalem in that same region of Moriah. Now, he was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And on that mountain that we call Calvary, he bore not a bundle of firewood, but a wooden cross. And on that day, God did not spare his own son. 
as a sacrifice, but rather, as Paul puts it in Romans 8.32, he did not spare even his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not with him grant us everything? You see, on that Good Friday, the Son of God made man was sacrificed for you and for me, and he took our place, and he bore our judgment. He was crucified on a tree and cursed for our sins. He died and was buried. Very different than Isaac. And it might have seemed on that day that God had failed. It might have seemed that his promises were now null and void. The Messiah is not the one supposed to die. But three days later, you know the story, God raised him from the dead. Jesus, three days later, his heart starts beating again. His lungs fill with air. Brain synapses that had been dead now start firing again. And Jesus walks out of a borrowed tomb, conquering sin and death for all who believe in him. You see, the promise of John 3.16 really is true. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So can you trust God without fail? Do your present circumstances tempt you to doubt his commands, his, pre- his promises, his provision? Look by faith. Here's, here's the, the bottom line and where we're going to end this. In those circumstances, look by faith through those circumstances to the cross. Because it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ at the cross where we find the way to interpret all of those circumstances. See the cross and the empty tomb and be assured, my brother and sister, this morning that God is worthy of all our trust, all our confidence, all our faith, and all of our praise. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the cross. We thank you that you are a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And we ask, Lord, this morning that you would search our hearts and by your word and spirit do a good work in us. Show us, Lord, where we need to rest all the more in you and in your sure promises and to trust you. And we ask, Lord, that you would get the glory in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.